periodically reviewing some of the basics, some of the fundamentals of the table. Helps us to think and act as God would have us so that we worship him rightly and maximize our souls, the profit to our souls that comes from it. I hope this message will keep us balanced at the table, not veering off into or steering us back from unhealthy habits. We're all too aware that whenever we repetitively perform any act of worship, we tend to slip into automatic mode. We go through the motions rather than purposely and alertly acting with whole-souled faith. So recapping the basics of the Lord's table can remind us of the scriptural answers to questions like these. And I have five of them. One, who is to come to the Lord's table and how? Two, who, I'm sorry, what is the table intended to accomplish? Three, what is God doing in the supper? Four, what should I be doing in the supper? Five, in leaving the supper, what should I think and feel and do? All right. So let's brush the spiritual dust off of ourselves and refresh our approach to the table uh, according to the will of God. As I've said, I want to teach some of these fundamentals from the Heidelberg. And these five questions and answers come from the section that's entitled, quote, of the holy sacraments, unquote. Now, you're going to hear me use the word sacrament repeatedly, even frequently. I will use other words like ordinances, but I'm going to use the word sacrament fundamentally. Now, for some of you, that word sacrament may be problematic to be polite about it. But be assured that both the primary author of the Heidelberg nor the authors of our Baptist Confession and Catechisms, who also use the word sacrament, don't mean that this ordinance automatically confers grace or that it conveys justifying grace as the Roman Church teaches. In this context, the word sacrament simply means a sacred thing something devoted to God, and it is a perfectly good word. Right? Again, I presume that few of you have read this section of the Heidelberg Catechism and the answers, and that's why I've given the Q and the A on your sheet. We'll be going through that. I trust that because most of you probably haven't read it, I, I really hope that it will strike you by saying the same truths you already know in a different way, and, and it will really stick with you. Uh, that's one of the advantages of having different men preach, of having different um, texts of scripture that talk about the same subject preached upon, or even from different times and places in the church throughout history of having men comment on things. They say it in what we hope is a true way, but a different enough way that it strikes us with a freshness. That's good. That's very good. The portions that I'll be reading that you have in front of you agree with our Baptist Confession and Catechism. 
The Heidelberg in this section, though, is fuller. It has, it has more information. And frankly, it's more personal. This proper subjective orientation is one of the great strengths of the Heidelberg, as we explained a few weeks ago. Its language emphasizes the benefits of these things to men and women of faith and why they should personally, from the heart, participate and receive blessing. All right? Now, I've reordered some of the questions, so they're not in exactly the same order. And I've updated the language to try to make it be clear. And while I am going to refer occasionally to a scripture, I'm going to assume that we already know and believe these things from our Bible. I'm simply trying to reacquaint you with them and reaffirm them. So, question 68. How many sacraments has Christ appointed in the New Testament? The answer is two. Holy baptism and the Holy Supper. Notice in this answer, there are not three, there are not four. There are very decidedly not seven. There are two. And they are named Holy Baptism and the Holy Supper. Now that's not language we typically use in our congregation. It's not bad language at all. In fact, it reminds us of a certain truth that we perhaps could be tempted to forget. By holy, the writer simply means that these appointments of Christ are dedicated to God. Christian baptism is not an ordinary washing. Oh, it's a washing, all right. But it's not an ordinary washing. This meal is a real meal, but it's not an ordinary meal. Both the washing and the meal, both ordinances, both sacraments, they are holy to God. They are dedicated to Him. In other words, they have a particular meaning for God and for you that your ordinary meals and Washings don't have. They are holy. They are set apart to God. They have religious significance. Texts such as the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize, teaching them all things. And Acts 2, 41 and 42 require us to hold them not only as church things, but as sacred things, things from God for the good of the church with a special meaning that they are to then be given, as it were, back to God. Now, some people say, wait a minute. No, you're making a mistake here. All the holy things like that, that's all Old Testament. <clears throat> well, it's true. There are lots of holy things, things dedicated to God in the Old Testament. And all of those, as a part of Old Testament worship, are completed or done away with. But that doesn't mean that there are no holy things in the New Covenant Church, in New Covenant worship. There are some holy things. I mean, who of you will deny this is a holy book? Really? No holy things in the New Covenant age? This is a holy book. This is a God-breathed, perfect book from him to us and meant for us to be giving back to him. This is a holy book. We're a holy people. Amen. Not holy enough yet. We will be someday. 
But the most common term for you and me is what? In the New Testament. Saint, holy one. That's our standing. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. There are holy things in the New Covenant age. We have a holy day. It's not the day it used to be. It's a different day. There was a holy day before Moses. There's a holy day during Moses' time. There's a holy day now, today, the first day of the week. Who will deny that there aren't holy things in the New Covenant age? Yes, there are fewer. If anything, that should simply make them more special. There are only a few. One of them is this table. This is a holy meal. The ordinances or the sacraments, the holy washing, the holy meal, they are part of God-appointed worship. And so we can freely, we can wholeheartedly throw ourselves into them with holy reverence and a joyful expectation of blessing. These are not forms of will worship. These are not man-invented religious ceremonies. Oh, yes, they are very much rituals or rites or ceremonies. But they are ones ordained by God, by Christ himself, for his public worship and religion. This is why we call them ordinances, because Christ ordained them. But because they are also holy to God, we also call them sacraments. Right? So that's, that's the first question. Now, question 66. What are the sacraments? What are they? We've identified what the two are, but in what do they consist? Here's the answer. The sacraments are visible signs and seals. And we'll explain those two words. But they are visible signs and seals appointed by God to more fully declare and confirm to us the promise of the gospel. Right? We, we often call this the visible gospel. Baptism is a visible gospel. In its form, it shares something that describes salvation and the actual accomplishment of it. They both point to, they both reflect that. <coughs> well, what is the gospel? That out of free grace, he grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for the sake of Christ's sacrifice accomplished on the cross. This is all about salvation. This is all about Christ. This is all about the work of Christ. So is baptism. So, let's ask this question again. What are the sacraments? How do they function? Well, they function in two ways. As signs and as seals. Now, some of you have grown up, as, as I did, in a, um, a cautious, a conservative... Uh, Baptist church life that did not see these as, as signs or seals really at all. Um, this was a table for us to remember Christ, and it certainly is that, but nothing more. But historically, particular Baptists, Reformed Baptists, typical Baptists, the majority of Baptists throughout uh, the last 400 years have believed that both baptism and the supper 
are signs and seals. Well, what does that mean? What does, what does that mean? What do those two words mean? Well, the Lord's table is a sign because it points to Christ's work. It points to the gospel. It points to the forgiveness of sins. It points to everlasting life. It's a sign that reads, look there. Look up there at Christ. The sacrament as a sign displays, represents, and declares the gospel as it pictures Christ's saving work. Again, that's why we call this the visible gospel. This is saying nothing different from the preached gospel. This is saying nothing different than the word of God. But it is saying something, and that's what it's preaching. Because what it's doing is it's pointing to that. It's saying, don't look at me. Look at what I stand for. Look to where the destination is. The destination is Christ. The destination is not the sign. When you travel down the road, you see a sign, five miles to such and such. You're not there just because you see the sign. The sign's a pointer to the reality. This is not the reality. This is something that says, look to Jesus Christ. So there's nothing magical here. There's nothing automatic here. These elements are not Christ. In fact, they call you to not focus on them, but focus on him. You wrongly understand the table if you're fixated on this. So the sacrament, as a sign, displays, represents, and declares the gospel. But both of these ordinances or sacraments, they do more than just point to Christ. God has ordained that they also seal the gospel to us. They seal Christ to us. That is, to use our own confessions language, it confirms our faith. It assures us. And, and we'll look at that in more detail in a bit. But this table validates and bolsters our faith in Christ and the benefits of his death. So the sacrament as a sign says what? Look to Christ. The sacrament as a seal says, see this? See him? That's true for you. I assure you, this belongs to you. That's what a seal says. So let's sum up. The Lord's table is a sign that points to Christ and says, look there. And when we see Christ, the table says, he is yours. He is yours. When you take the bread or the cup, don't ponder it as if it were the actual body or blood of Christ. No, it's a sign and a seal of those things. Instead, look to Christ and see that he is yours. What a kind God we have to regularly institute this wonderful reminder, not just of Christ's work, but of Christ's work for us, for you, for me. That's what the Lord's table is, a visible declaration and a confirmation 
that the crucified Christ is ours. Now, with that definition, it becomes very clear why we fence the table and why the churches throughout the centuries have, when they've rightly understood all this, fenced the table. What do we mean by that? If you're an unbeliever, or if you are outside of God's church, and by that I mean invisible or visible, if you're outside of that, this table's not for you. In fact, the early church, at, at the point where they would take this supper, they would have every visitor, everyone who wasn't what we would call a member, they would all have to leave. That's how serious they were about the table being a sign and a seal. Because if you're taking it and Christ didn't die for you, if there's no reason to believe that, if you don't have faith, if you don't see Christ in this, if you're not a part of his church, well, then the sign isn't pointing to Christ for you, and it's not assuring you that he's yours, because he's not. At least there's no reason to think that. So everyone had to leave. This is why it was easy for the early church to be accused of cannibalism. We say, that's ridiculous. How could anybody think that? Well, they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their elder brother. That's cannibalism. Now, we understand what that means scripturally, but that's the way they talked, and they didn't want to do this in front of the unsaved. <laughs> and so it was easy for the gossip to get started, especially since these are the people who are the reason for everything bad that happens to us in the world. It's, it's their fault that, that our crops failed, or this happened, or that, we lost a battle, or this and that. And, and that's what they did. Right. But that's how serious the early church was about this. Question 65. Since we partake of Christ and all his benefits by faith alone, how does this faith come to us? We believe in sola fide, faith alone. Amen. So we're talking about faith coming to us, being assured, faith being strengthened. How does this work in Pastor Ron? Well, here's the answer. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. So that's the initial working of faith. It's when you, through preaching, through the reading, through personal witness, you hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit works, and you're renewed. He gives you faith. You believe. And confirms it in the use of the sacraments. In other words, the sacrament actually functions as a seal. It affirms, confirms, convinces, assures you that Christ is yours. The reformers who wrote this catechism and the Baptists and others who have used it for centuries believed in sola fide, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That truth has always needed and still needs to be clearly stated against any church that teaches that justifying grace comes through the sacraments. Justifying grace does not come through these sacraments. That's the point of this question and answer. Justifying grace comes by the Spirit and the Word and not by merely taking of this table. I've told you this before, but Jonathan Edwards, his his, in his day, very famous, more famous than Jonathan Edwards was, uh, grandfather Solomon Stoddard, uh, he was wrong. He believed that the Lord's table was a converting ordinance. 
He wasn't Roman Catholic. He was probably as virulently against that as you could be. Um, different ones can make this mistake, right? Justifying grace. Getting right with God doesn't happen through this table. No, the converting ordinance, if we could use such language, is receiving the spoken word by the Spirit's power, not the visible word. But that's not all this question teaches, because while the Lord's table is not a converting ordinance, it is a faith-strengthening ordinance. It does not give you faith initially, but it does strengthen the true faith that you have. If you're rightly at the table, if you're a real Christian, you have faith and you come to the table and you see Jesus, your faith will be strengthened. The Holy Spirit confirms faith by the use of the sacraments, as it says. So the Holy Spirit fortifies our faith by means of the Lord's Supper. Our 1689 Confession those men found this teaching in the Bible. Those are absolutely right. It's found in 1 Corinthians 10 very plainly in some other places. But it says in chapter 14, paragraph 1, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought or worked by the ministry of the Word. but also, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed by God, it is increased and strengthened. So initial faith doesn't come to you by partaking of this. But if you have faith and you come to this table, that faith can be strengthened. And all of us know the prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. We know how weak our faith is. We know it needs to be stronger. This is one of the means whereby God strengthens our faith. Sometimes people get foggy about this idea of means. God has ordained in his word certain ways that his people grow. In other words, the perfect Christ who has earned all grace for his people, he sits in heaven enthroned. Mm -hmm. How does the grace that belongs to him, practically speaking, come to his people? How does that happen? You say, well, through the Holy Spirit. He's the one who finishes and applies the work of Christ to his people. That's exactly right. But does the Spirit just do that as you're walking down the road? Does he just zap you whenever and, and all you can do is just... Boy, I hope he zaps me today. No, no, no. The Word of God tells us that there are certain things that the Holy Spirit uses to apply the grace. So there's a channel. There are channels of grace that run from Jesus to his church. And the Holy Spirit is ready to make those come alive for you. But you must use them. You must pray. You must read and hear the Word of God. You must worship. You must fellowship. Preeminently after the word, though, you must be baptized and you must partake of the Lord's table. This is one of the primary channels of grace from Jesus to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. So saving faith comes by the word and the spirit. But the Lord's Supper 
increases and strengthens that same faith. There, there is no conflict between the Lord's cross and the Lord's table. If we believe that the Lord's cross paid for our sins, and if we believe that the Lord's table points to that same work and says that it's ours, why are we surprised that this is one of the ways that our faith grows? That seems, seems almost sensible, doesn't it? So when we come by faith, with our imperfect faith, to this table, asking that we would be strengthened, that's what God does in this ordinance. All right? Well, with these questions answered, the fundamental qualification for coming to the table should be clear. So that's, of course, the next question. Question 81, who is to come to the Lord's table? Now, this is a general spiritual answer. This doesn't include any, um, any views or understanding of, of the visible church or, or church order. Um, so we'll say a bit more about this later. But this really is an excellent answer, uh, especially given the context for when this was all written. Answer. Those who are displeased with themselves for their sins, but who trust that these are forgiven and that their remaining infirmity, that's a big word for weakness, is covered by the passion and death of Christ. These also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend or change, improve their life. But the impenitents, those who refuse to confess their sins and agree with God about them, and hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. So who is to come? The answer says, those who are displeased for their sins but trust in Christ. We usually say it this way. Those of you who have repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another way of summarizing that. Or we could say those who have repented and believed. These same ones recognize their own spiritual weakness. They desire more spiritual strength, more holiness of life. Those are the ones who should come to the table. Are you self-righteous? Don't come to the table. It will be for your judgment. You say, but I loathe myself. When I look at myself, I am so disgusted. How, how could I possibly come to the table? Do you understand that self-loathing is not a disqualification for the table? It is the qualification for the table. According to Ezekiel 36, it's one of the benefits of the new covenant. <laughs> well, if God is working self-loathing in you, that you can't depend on yourself, you must depend on Jesus Christ, why does that stop you from coming to Christ? It shouldn't. Now, I'm not talking about hard-heartedness. I'm not talking about you saying, I know this is wrong. I'm not giving this up. I enjoy it too much. Forget it. I am not changing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you, the real Christian, who looks at himself and says, why do I keep doing that? I can't seem to beat this. This is too big or strong or evil or something for me. How, how can I, with a good conscience, come to Christ? Well, how did you come to him the first time? Did you clean yourself up before you came to him so he would accept you? Not if you came truly. Amen. 
Not if you came in faith. So why after you're his child, when he's worked faith and new life in you, and now you see even more of your disgusting sin than you did before because you're actually a Christian, why should that keep you from the table? If you're not impenitent, you belong, brother and sister. You belong at the table. Now, again, I understand that there are times when because of certain sins and, and different things in your life, you, you may decide to step aside for a short period or, or the pastor might even come to you and say, brother, sister, it seems to me you are not taking what your brothers and sisters are saying to you seriously. And I'm telling you, please, um, don't come to the table for judgment. You take time and you make sure you're serious about your sin. Now that should be very rarely done, but sometimes that is very healthy. But ordinarily, which is greater? Your sin or Jesus' grace? Did his death atone for all of your sins or some of your sins? So come to the table. Come to the table. Don't be harder on yourself than God is. Are you more righteous than him? <laughs> really? Are you more demanding than he is? Then I suspect you're a legalist. He doesn't want you wallowing in your sins, doing some kind of Protestant penance, you know, I'll clean myself up and, and then I'll take the table. He wants you to come to the table, yes, confessing your sins. But then being done with that and remember his son and see his son and take his son and eat his son and drink his son and be more deeply united to his son by faith than ever before. I mean, your sin ought to make you understand just how desperately you need him. That's the remedy to disgust and discouragement at the Lord's table. The simple question for Christians is this. Do you feel your need again for the Savior? Do you lean on Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins? Do you feel your weakness in all things spiritual? Then you're qualified to come. You are commanded to come too, I might add. All of Christ's commands are gracious, therefore you're good. They're never to punish you. They're for you to benefit. So by faith, in just a few moments, when we call you to the supper, come. <laughs> Don't come mindlessly as a body in a chair. Come with your whole soul and remember Christ and see Christ and accept Christ again. Take the Christ who was offered to you. Feast on Christ. Reflect on all that he is and realize he's becoming yours. You're eating him in sign form. Renew your vows to Christ. Profit from Christ. Rejoice in Christ. The Lord's table is really not a place to be overly 
modest (laughs) or halting. It's a lot like prayer. You just need to go. Your heavenly father is waiting and you just need to go. But I'm not ready. I don't know the words. I don't go. The man studied, I think, with some real prophet yesterday, Psalm 5. And we learned, among other things, that prayer is sometimes given with words. And sometimes prayer is just a groan. (laughs) It's a, I don't even know what to say. Well, you don't have to know what to say. You are indwelt by a spirit who translates, who knows you better than you know, and is able to pass that through the Son to the Father, and that's still prayer, according to the inspired prophet David. That's still prayer. Well, that's what this is too. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know exactly quite how to. You you just need to come to Jesus again. Do you understand he's being offered to you, brother or sister? Then you come. Then you come. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to pray some... This is what God wants you to repeatedly do in regard to his son. He's presenting Jesus to you again. People say, well, I'm not quite sure I understand how this works. Well, I'm not sure I do either. I'm not even sure the Bible wants to explain that to us. But I think at least part of the answer is how we get assurance through this is this is Jesus in sign form. Do you want him or not? Do you feel your need or not? If you don't, you should be frightened. Oh, but I I said my prayer. I walked my aisle. I did this. I did that. In John, those are saved who go on believing. They don't believe once and it ends and they don't have faith after that. It's those who keep on believing. Well, how do you know if you keep on believing? Here's a great way to know. Do you want this Christ? Do you need this Christ? Do you believe in this Christ? Do you think he's a sufficient atonement, a sufficient righteousness for you? Well, then you'd take him again, wouldn't you? It's not getting saved again. It is being built up in the most holy faith, though. The true faith you already have is being assured, confirmed, helped. No, the Lord's table isn't a place to be overly modest. It's a place to come by faith, believing that God accepts sinners like you and me through Christ. The Lord's table is the table for believing sinners, for righteous sinners, as we often say. So Christian, do you see the great folly of doing something else on the Lord's day when Christ has set the table for you? Why would you not want to be in worship so that you could see and eat Christ again? This is one of the God-appointed ways of growing in grace. It's one of the ways of being more united to Christ. It's not the only way, but it's a major way. I mean, do you really not need more grace? Are you really close enough to Christ? You You don't need more of him. You don't need to draw near to him. Well, if not, make it a point to come to the table. Paul, in one of the most humorous, I think, massive understatements in the New Testament, says, not all men have faith. You think, Paul? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Not all men have faith. 
So some of you won't be at this table in a few moments. And I want to urge you to see the table, but don't partake of the table. Because that would bring judgment upon you. But watching and reflecting on what this points to and what work this does under the sovereign free grace of the Holy Spirit potentially has great benefit for you. This is not a converting ordinance. But this Lord's Supper should confront you with the reality of your relationship to God. If you are outside the table, you are outside of God and Christ. In every ordinary situation, if you are outside the table, you are outside of God in Christ. That's why it's called fellowship. That's why it's union. That's why it's... <laughs> so that this table is calling you to be displeased with your sins, to use Heidelberg catechism language, and to trust Christ, to repent and believe. The table isn't a converting ordinance, but perhaps it will be a converting occasion today for you. What a wonderful thing that would be. Now, finally, for those of you who are qualified by faith to come to the table, this question, question 75. How does the Lord's table signify and seal to you that you partake of Christ's sacrifice and all his benefits? In this way is the answer. I love this. That his body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread and cup. And further, that his body and blood, he feeds and nourishes my soul as certainly as I taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord. They are given to me as certain tokens of the body and blood of Christ. Why didn't God ordain that the remembrance of Christ's death be merely spoken words by perhaps a pastor? Well, because in his wisdom, God wants you to not only know through your ears that he is good, but he wants you to taste and see that he is good. He wants you with your entire humanity, body and soul, to know that Christ is good for you and he is for you, Christian. So this answer makes two points. First, it answers the question of how does the Lord's table work as a means of grace? And secondly, it tells us how we can be sure about our personal participation with Christ. The elements of the Lord's table present visible symbols of Christ's death to our physical senses, right? We're given a piece of broken bread and a cup filled with blood-like juice. These signs match our belief in Christ's sacrificial death with the senses of sight and touch and smell and taste. Maybe you've never thought about this, but this is not a mental exercise of purely, you know, with your brain remembering. That's not what the table is. That's only where it starts. It moves from the brain to the hand, to the nose, to the mouth. 
to the inward parts. And so it strengthens our faith because these things symbolize Christ and they're offered to us by God. And we don't just look at them. We don't just think about them. We take them and we ingest them. It's a picture of Christ becoming ours. Now, yes, he's already ours. But there's a real sense in which we can say he's more ours now. We understand better. We see our need more clearly. We choose him by the grace of God again, and he becomes ours afresh. In other words, God offers Christ to us anew in these elements, and we take and we eat and we drink them, and all of this pictures our acceptance of Christ and receiving spiritual nourishment from him. Because again, we don't only remember Christ at the table, we also feed on him. What's one of the main points of any meal? It's nourishment. Closely followed by pleasure. Yeah. Amen. God is good. Pie is good. Well, we're going to eat in a few minutes. It's going to be good. It, it's not only going to nourish us, it's going to bring us joy. Right? That's true in this supper, only better. We believingly abide in the vine when we eat Christ's flesh. Those are his words. And drink his blood. Those are his words. That's just a way of saying, by faith, uniting ourselves ever more tightly with him. When we eat here, we are nourished. Of course our faith grows. Of course it does. And now here's the really, really great part. These signs are true for every qualified partaker. How sure are you? This is one of those silly questions, children. Yeah. This is one of those questions pastor asks because by the time he gets done, you go, oh, duh, that's a, every, that's a dumb question. Yep, this is one of those. How sure are you who are at the table that the bread is in your hand after you take it? How sure are you after you take the cup out of its little holder, if it isn't stuck in there, as it sometimes is, how sure are you that that cup is in your hand? I told you it was a duh question. Well, I mean, I trust my senses. I, I trust my eyes. I, I look and I see the piece of bread and I, I take it and I hold it in my hand and I, I know it's in my hand. I mean, come on. I know the cup is in my hand. I, I can feel it. It's cool, and it's, I don't want to spill it, and I, it, it's right here. It's real. Of course it's there. Well, if it's in your hand, so is Christ's work for you. It's in your hand. It's right there. Because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's not really happening, or it's far away, or it's not existent. How sure are you that it's in your hand? Well, that's how sure you can be. That Christ's body was broken for you. It's in your hand. And his blood was shed for you. It's in your mouth. How sure are you that you taste the elements? Pastor, of course I taste the elements. 
Yes. That's how certain you can be that he is feeding your soul. It's not about your emotional reaction. It's not about whether you feel some special insight or, although that may very well happen. It's not even whether you have perfectly paid attention and are thinking exactly right and do you believe this is Christ's body? Are you taking it as his? Then these things are working for you because the Holy Spirit delights to apply the perfections of Christ to you. These elements are, as the Catechism says, and I think as the Bible teaches, these elements are certain tokens of the possession of Christ and all his saving benefits. And that's, again, why we fence the table. Because we really do believe that these not only are for Christians, but they really do these things for Christians. And if anyone and everyone partakes, then that loses a lot of its force, doesn't it? Well, in summary, let's answer those five questions very, very quickly that we ask at the beginning of the sermon. Who is to come to the table? The short answer is those who are displeased with themselves and trust Christ alone for the payment of their guilt. How do you do that? How do you come to Christ? Humble faith. Leaning faith. Believing, trusting faith. Question two. What is the table intended to accomplish? Well, it's intended to picture the gospel for us and to confirm that gospel in ourselves. What is God doing in the supper? Question three. He is offering Christ to us, and he is confirming that he is ours. He's assuring our hearts that we belong to Jesus Christ. Question four, what should I be doing at the supper? Well, if you're a Christian, you should be remembering Christ and taking him by faith. Fifth and finally, in leaving the supper, what should I think, feel, and do? Well, you should think more of Christ. And you should feel love and thankfulness and assurance. And you should go with fresh determination to follow this wonderful, all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray.